Well, as we get started for the teaching part of our time tonight, let's look to the Lord and ask Him that He would teach us, especially as it relates to this important doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, and His work of illumination in us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here. We're grateful for your loving kindness, which never fails. We're grateful for the wonderful gospel, which promises us an inheritance that we can not even fathom. We're thankful for Jesus Christ, who on the cross took our sins upon himself previously having lived that perfect life so that then, through that wonderful interaction, we might have his righteousness. And we're thankful for your spirit whom you have sent, the spirit of truth who teaches us in all things, who gives us understanding, who gives us the desire to obey and makes us see the glories of your word and their in their brightness. We pray this evening that he would be at work, that he would be deepening our understanding of these precious truths, that he would be increasing in us our desire for obedience, and that he would be stoking the flames of our love for your precious truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this evening our topic is entitled... The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. That title comes from several statements that Jesus makes in his farewell discourse in the upper room prior to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it first of all in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, where Jesus says he encourages his failing disciples, he gives them this statement. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. A few moments later, Jesus will repeat much of the same idea when he says in John 15, verses 26 to 27, these words, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then a third time, Near the end of their meal together, Jesus says this in John 16, verses 12 to 15. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. 
Now, all of these texts speak directly of Jesus' promise to the apostles. As they were there in the upper room and as they heard the words of Jesus foretelling his impending death and his departure after his resurrection, his departure from this earth, the disciples were understandably stricken with fear. Their teacher, their Lord, was leaving. How would they possibly survive in this world? How would they possibly know what to do? And in the midst of that concern, Jesus comforts them with these precious words to those very disciples that he would send another paraclete, an advocate, a helper, whom he calls the Spirit of Truth. Three times, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Truth. And Jesus calls him the Spirit of Truth because of what is associated with the Holy Spirit's ministry, this helper's ministry. That it would be the Spirit who would disclose things to these apostles, the Spirit who would remind these apostles of things that Jesus had already taught, and the Spirit would help them, the apostles, give testimony. These are precious promises to that group of men there in that upper room. Well, just a couple of decades later, the Apostle Paul writes a text that really, that really follows up on that promise and shows how Jesus' promise to his disciples was being fulfilled. It's the text that we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to return to it for just a moment because it's this text in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 10 to 13 that illustrates how the Helper, the Holy Spirit, was disclosing things to the apostles, was reminding them of the things that Jesus taught, and he had this ministry of granting them this knowledge and helping them testify to the world about Christ. We read these words last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Paul writes this, again, speaking of this group of select apostles, these, those who would contribute to what we have today in the New Testament canon. Paul writes, for to us, God revealed them, speaking of the deep things of God, God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul here testifies to the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave the apostles. That deep things, necessary things, needed things to the people of God would be granted to those apostles who in turn would be given the ability to communicate those things perfectly. The first part of that equation, the delivery or disclosure of divine knowledge, is what we call revelation. The second part of that equation 
the articulation of that knowledge in human language, in human words, taking concepts, taking content, those spiritual thoughts, taking that and putting those into spiritual words is what we call inspiration. And Paul says this is what is taking place. It is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Yet the Holy Spirit's ministry of truth was not just aimed at the apostles, not just aimed at the biblical writers. The Holy Spirit's ministry of truth, as we are going to see tonight, is also a ministry in a unique way that is accomplished among all people of God. It's what we call the doctrine of illumination. Now, before we get there, I just want to say this. When you look at a lot of Christian books on the Christian mind, it is this topic which is glaringly missing. There's a lot about the need for conversion. We attest to that. There's a lot about the need for a disciplined mind for the Christian, a need for perpetual learning, for worldview discernment and things of that nature. But what is woefully missing in so many of these books on the mind and how Christians ought to think, so glaringly missing is the treatment of the Spirit's ministry of illumination. And so it's to that which we turn tonight. This is an essential ingredient in the whole discussion. We, we cannot miss this very, very important topic. In fact, this is a precious topic, and as we'll see tonight, this is a glorious topic, a topic which undoubtedly we have only probed the, the, the shallowness of it or the, the shallow parts of it, and there's so much more to it. And, and as we keep digging deeper, we see just how wonderful a God we have who has given to us this spirit of truth. Let's begin with the question, what is the biblical doctrine of illumination? And let's define that term, illumination. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, let's begin with the basics. To illuminate, according to a standard dictionary, means this. It means, number one, in a literal sense, it means to supply something with light, to shine light on something. In a more figurative way, it means to make something clear and easier to understand. That's the basic meaning of the verb, to illuminate. Now, theologians have taken that term and have taken it to to apply to this special ministry of the Holy Spirit because it so picturesquely describes what the Spirit does for the believer. In a basic way, Carl Truman defines illumination this way. He says, quote, illumination, he's speaking theologically now, illumination is the term that refers to the need for the human mind to be enlightened by God in order to understand the things of God. Now remember, we looked at this a little bit last week. The things of God to us are mysterious. God is wholly other. He is infinite. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign. He is all-wise. He never learns. He always knows. And he has determined what will take place forever 
within space and time. That is, that, that is his knowledge. It is boundless. And so when we talk about the knowledge of God and the ability of man, obviously we run into a real problem. How can limited man possibly, possibly use his mind to understand the things of God? Now you add to that the problem of sin that has corrupted man. You add to that the problem of our our, our sinful tendencies, our ignorance, and you have an even greater problem. Well, illumination is that which describes what God does not to supplement his knowledge, not to improve the knowledge that he wants to convey to us about himself, but that illumination is what he does to us as those who are firstly creatures but then also creatures who have a sin problem. God, in his mercy, has not just put his knowledge out there and left us to wander about seeking to grasp it, but he has disclosed himself and, through his Spirit, has given us assistance. And that's what this doctrine is all about. Kevin Zuber, one of our faculty members here at the seminary, defines this kind of illumination a little bit in greater detail when he says this, quote, Illumination is a work of the Holy Spirit whereby the hearer or reader of the Word of God is given understanding of the information contained in it and brought to appropriate its meaning. Now, when we look at that definition, we see that there are basically three important ingredients here when we think of what the Spirit does in us as it relates to the knowledge of God. We we cannot just on our own grasp it, understand it, appropriate it, love it. The Spirit is involved, and so when we talk about illumination, we talk about these things. First of all, illumination is a work that is done by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit that special agent of divine disclosure and enablement. Secondly, as we will see, it is a work that is done through God's Word. It is a work that is done through the Scripture. And then thirdly, this doctrine of illumination includes the ingredient that it is done to a hearer or a reader of that Word. That's a basic definition. Now, From there, let's now discuss the need for illumination. Why do we need this? Well, I've already summarized that and and mentioned that we need it because we're creatures, we're limited, we're very, very limited, and God is infinite. But we also need illumination because of our sin problem. But if we want to go deeper into this, we can look at two kinds of scripture, two uh, passages or, or uh, genres of scripture that really, that really describe for us in vivid detail our need for illumination. And, and those two categories of scripture are the prayers that we find. Two different kinds of prayer. First of all, the prayers of the psalmist in Psalm 119. And then secondly, the prayers of the Apostle Paul that he records for us in his letters to the churches. These prayers... These petitions to God describe for us, in vivid detail, our need for light. 
our need for enlightenment, our need for divine enablement. Let's look first at the prayers found in Psalm 119, the prayers of the psalmist. Now, we all know Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible. It is a psalm in which every verse speaks in some way about the revelation of God to man. That's what this whole psalm is about. Some have called it an ode to Scripture. It is a psalm which uses many different synonyms to describe the Bible. It is law, it is precepts, it is commandments, it is loving kindness, it is truth, so on and so forth. The psalmist extols God's verbal revelation. The psalmist extols God's revelation of himself to man. But the psalm doesn't just describe the beauties of Scripture. The psalm in these prayers that are uttered throughout also describe these pleas for enablement. You can go from cover or from the start to the, the end of the psalm and you can see just how often in every breath the psalmist is pleading for enablement. Let me give you just a few examples. Psalm 119 Verses 17 to 18, notice the petition that the psalmist gives. He says this, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verses 27 to 29, he says, make me understand, verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, so that I will meditate on your wonders. And then in verse 29, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. In verse 73, he says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The the psalmist recognizes here in, in, in these petitions That God is his creator and that if he is to have any true knowledge, if he is one who has been created by God, is to function in the correct way, including even his mind, his intellect, he must have that enablement. He recognizes that his way is the false way, his own way. He recognizes that if he walks according to his own knowledge, he walks according to the path of sin. And so he petitions that God would remove the error and instead grant understanding of his law. Going back to verse 33, we have there the verb to teach, this verb that is used many times throughout the psalm, in, in, it's in the, these prayers, these admonitions, or these exhortations, these requests, Lord, teach me, teach me, teach me. Psalm 119, verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. In verse 135, he says this, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. They're combining the concept of shining and the concept of teaching together in that one statement. 
In fact, there's one of the stanzas of this lengthy psalm that, that really intensely communicates this plea for illumination. It's the fifth standard. It begins in verse 33, as I've already read. Let me read these verses from verses 33 to 40 and just hear the number of times the psalmist pleads for enlightenment. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path, uh, path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant so that, as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Now over and over again, the psalmist pleads for this. He recognizes that true understanding and application of God's word is not something that comes naturally. It is not something that is innate or intuitive. If there is to be true understanding, the true use of the mind as it grapples with truth, if there is to be true appropriation and application of the truth, it will only happen, the psalmist recognizes, with this divine enablement. And if the divine enablement, that illumination is not granted, then nothing is attainable at all. Now he reaches this conclusion, not because he sees in God's word some kind of internal defect. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and so the Spirit has to come alongside and shine light on a dark word. It's a very important thing to to recognize that that is not what the psalmist is requesting. The deficiency is not in the scriptures. The the need for enablement and illumination to, to understand and apply is not because of the Bible's, the word of God's insufficiency, some kind of defect, not at all. All of these requests are aimed not at the word to transform the word, but aimed at the reader to transform him. So that's an important observation as we move forward to understand when we talk about illumination. Understand this, it's not God making his word better to us. It's not God improving his word, changing it somehow because it didn't do what it is supposed to do. No, when we talk about divine illumination, it is always the illumination that occurs because of our deficiency. Now, there is another section of Scripture that teaches on the illumination of the Spirit, and that is the prayers of Paul, the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Now, whenever we talk about Paul's prayers, we immediately think to how these prayers are paradigms for our own praying, and certainly they are. These prayers that Paul has recorded in his letters to the churches are 
are, are paradigmatic for us. That if we really want to pray biblically, if we want to pray in accordance with the will of God, we learn how to pray imitating Paul. And that certainly is the case. But there's something else in Paul's prayers that, are, that, that is helpful here. And it is how he refers to the illumination of the Spirit. And I want to look at a few of these important texts. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 to 19, Paul says this, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, now get this, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul is praying for enlightenment. And in the NASB, as I read to you, you'll notice there in the text, you have the rendering of the text this way, that that, that the Father may give you a spirit, lowercase s, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. The Legacy Standard Bible, I think, translates this more correctly when it translates it not as a spirit of wisdom and revelation, but the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And again, we must understand that that Paul, as he writes this, is recognizing that the great agent of divine disclosure, the one who not only reveals the deep things of God into human language, but the one who enables the knowing of that, he is the Spirit. And so Paul calls him the Spirit of wisdom and of of revelation. You could call him the Spirit of truth the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Speaking of this particular prayer, D.A. Carson, in his helpful book entitled Praying with Paul, states this, Paul does not simply pray that we might know God better, but that God might give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to the end that we might know God better. There is a set means to the desired end. Let's stop just there for a moment. I think when we would look at ourselves and those around us, especially our family members, we would always say we want ourselves and those around us to know God better. How many times have we not prayed that? But what the Apostle Paul is doing here is not only praying for that ultimate end, but he is identifying for us the means by which that end will be achieved. And what is the means by which that end will be achieved that we will know God better? Well, God, in fulfilling that prayer request, gives the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. As Carson states, he says, as I continue here, he says there is a set means to the desired end. What is required is wisdom and revelation mediated by the Spirit. 
This is not simply a corpus of truth to be picked up by reading a book on systematic theology. It is growth and wisdom, which probably here refers to how to live in God's universe so as to please him. And it is growth in revelation. He continues. He states, Christians need the Spirit of God to reveal more of himself and his ways to us if we are to know God better. For it is the Spirit's task to take the things that belong to the domain of God, the domain of glory, and to bring them to us so that we can receive them. That is the Spirit's ministry to us. Paul recognized that, and so as he thought of those dear Ephesian believers, his prayer was not merely that God would grant them to know him better, although that is Paul's ultimate aim, but Paul is also praying for the means. And this is so precious for us. God is a God of means, and he's revealed to us how we come to know Him better and how we come to know Him and His truth better is through the precious work of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Spirit of truth, the Helper, the Advocate, the One who gives us the ability to understand more and more accurately and truthfully, the One who takes that knowledge and helps us apply it practically in life, and the one who gives us that ever-increasing hunger and thirst for such truth. A little bit later on, Paul again prays for the Ephesians, and he says this, Ephesians three fourteen to 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What a powerful prayer. And it attacks directly that kind of sentimentalism today which says, you know what, doctrine isn't important. If I've got the spirit, I'm going to feel it. If the Spirit's at work, I'm going to have the experience of the the Spirit, that intuition, that deep gut feeling that He is there. Paul turns that completely on its head and says that if the Spirit is operating, if the Spirit is, is truly working, He is aiming at your comprehension. He is aiming at your mind first and foremost, your understanding. The Spirit is concerned about truth and your proper apprehension of it. The Spirit is concerned that you would come and come to love it and cherish it. And that all has to do first and foremost with your mind. God has given us the Spirit so that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man. Look also at Philippians 1 verses 9 to 11. We won't. I'll quote it later, but that is another prayer which 
describes for us our need for illumination. But let's look at one more prayer. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Here Paul writes this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This whole prayer that Paul prays here is all about the Spirit's ministry and it is all about enlightenment, all about illumination. This is what the Christians needed. Paul didn't put up at the top. They need work, although we must pray for each other and those kinds of things. He didn't say we need health, although there are other prayers that we are given, examples in Scripture where we pray for each other's health. But as Paul thought about what those Colossians needed in the culture in which they were in, in the situation and circumstances that they were in, this is what was on his heart. Divine illumination. Divine illumination, that that increasing ability to apprehend, to appropriate, to appreciate the truth of God. Paul knew that it is the truth of God which would transform them, the truth of God which would sanctify them, the truth of God which 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 would change them. And if that was to happen, the Spirit was needed to bring that all about. And that's what he prayed for. In fact, here there's this statement that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that term spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding really refer to spirit-given wisdom and spirit-given understanding. The spirit who is the source of of the self-disclosure of God to man is also that one who very intimately, very personally takes that same truth in your life, in that unseen way, he takes that truth and he guides you in that apprehension of it. Now what does this illumination accomplish? Well, we've already seen it in some of these prayers what the illumination accomplishes is, if, is reflected in so many of the so that or in order that statements that we found in those very prayers. Whether it's the psalmist or Paul, they both recognized that, that the, the enlightenment that would come from the Spirit, the illumination, wasn't just some kind of, some kind of event that had no meaningful impression or influence on life. No, it would bring about certain ends. And I think you could take all of those so that statements, whether it's in the psalm, Psalm 119, or in Paul's prayers, and you could take some of the other texts that also speak of this divine illumination, such as 1 John chapter 2. There are other texts. And I think you could take all of those enlightenment texts, those illumination texts, and, and you can put the the, the, 
the results of that enlightenment into three categories. These three categories explain the purpose for this ministry of the Spirit. Number one, illumination is necessary for intellectual understanding. Illumination is necessary for intellectual understanding. It's not that we take care of the intellectual stuff and the Spirit works on the rest. No, right from the very beginning, with the very start, we need the Spirit's guidance. We can go back to a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which very clearly says that the natural man, the man devoid of the Spirit, does not understand the things of God, nor does he accept them. He can't. It's impossible. But when there is divine illumination, that happens. So in Psalm 119, verse 73, the psalmist says, Give me understanding. Why? That I may learn your commandments. That I may learn. That's why the verb teach is is used so often in Psalm 119. Teach me, teach me, teach me. Aimed at the intellect, aimed at the mind. Illumination is essential for intellectual understanding. You don't have the spirit, you will not have intellectual understanding of the revelation of God. You may purport to have understanding, you may give your theories and hypotheses, but that is not understanding, that is not true knowledge. Secondly, illumination is essential for willful obedience. This has to do with the will. The first category had to do with the mind. This one has to do with the will. Psalm 119, verse 88. Revive me. Another synonym there used for this concept of enlightenment. Revive me according to your loving kindness. Why? What's the target? What's the end result? So that I may keep your testimony of your mouth. So that I may keep. And as you go through the psalm, Psalm 119, you see this over and over again. Grant me, give me, teach me, so that I may walk, I may observe, I may keep. That has to do with the act of the will, as that which has come to be known is then brought out into actual practice. The walk. The, the lifestyle, the behavior. In Philippians 1 verse 9 to 11, notice here how this enlightenment leads to behavior. It leads to a kind of lifestyle. Paul says this, And this I pray that you may, your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. There's the intellectual part. But now notice this. In order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. These are all running together. This knowledge of truth is also running together with the obedience to it. And again, if you have not the Spirit if you are not made alive in the Spirit, if you're not one of Christ's, you have no capacity, no ability to do the kind of things that are spoken of in this prayer, to, to do that work of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much money you, you, you give to charity, no, no matter how much you, you help people along the way, if you are not in Christ, if you are, are not indwelt by the Spirit, if you're not one of His, this kind of lifestyle, this kind of righteousness 
is impossible. Number three, illumination is essential for fervent desire. This has to do with the affections. This is the culmination. This is the love and the desire. And what is fascinating is when you go through Psalm 119, you're struck by how many times the writer speaks of his study of Scripture in the terms of love and desire, in terms of delight, because this is a result of the Spirit's work. So the psalmist says, he prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. The psalmist realizes that for him to see, to get the glimpse of the beauties of divine truth, it requires the Spirit to open the eyes. Psalm 119, verses 127 to 128. Here the psalmist recognizes, as a result of this enablement, he recognizes the wonderful treasure of God's Word. He says, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The illumination of the Spirit is essential to to fan the flames of this kind of fervent desire. To increasingly see the Scriptures in their glorious nature. to, To see their loveliness, their beauty. That is not a product of your own effort. That is something that is produced by the Spirit through this ministry. Jonathan Edwards, in defining this, describes the Spirit's illumination in these words in a sermon entitled The Divine and Supernatural Light. He said this, and it may be thus described, a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the Word of God and a conviction of the truth and reality of them thence arising. This spiritual light, this illumination, primarily consists in the former of these, namely, a real sense and apprehension of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the Word of God, a spiritual and saving conviction of the truth and reality of these things arises from such a sight of their divine excellency and glory, so that this conviction of their truth is an effect and a natural consequence of this sight of their divine glory, end quote. Now, that's quite of a high style of language. If we simplify that a little bit, just think of it this way. Think of your life before you came to Christ. And, and, and remember how you would have looked upon being even here at a Bible study on a Wednesday night. Think of how you would have looked at the study of the Bible What's the point? What's there? Remember that. And now think of how that has changed. How these truths have changed. But you know what? These truths are not the things that have changed. It's you. Your own desire. Your own assessment. Your own appreciation for these things. That today, they are more beautiful than they were yesterday. Today, they are more beautiful than they were a year ago. And there's this strange draw to them. And as you study, 
you find yourself inexplicably drawn to them more and more, and you realize, this is what I need. This is worth more than riches. This is, is more valuable to me than the choicest of treasures of this world. Where did that come from? It came from this precious ministry of the Spirit operating in your life, even unknown to you. Even you being unconscious of that reality, He is there as that helper. As He is slowly but surely giving you a greater understanding, helping you see these things step by step, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but there's progress. And as you do, you start to see them more and more beautifully and and it's greater and greater treasure. That's the Spirit at work in you. So what does the Spirit do through illumination? These three things. He enables you to understand. That's your intellect. He enables you to apply. That's that's your will, and he enables you to love. It's your affections, to love the word of God. Now, what does this not mean? It, it means, obviously, that this is not a, a, a channel for new revelation. We won't get into this tonight, but the Spirit's work of illumination is not to give you new revelation. The Spirit's work of illumination is, is not a work that happens apart from the Bible whether that is the Bible being read, whether that is the Bible being heard, or whether that is the Bible being remembered. He doesn't work apart from those things through illumination. This is not a guarantee of perfect understanding. When we talk about illumination, we're not talking about here about an absolute understanding and and a perfect understanding, an instantaneous guarantee that that you've got it all right. It's also not a privilege just for elite Christians. This is not something just pastors experience or, or just those who've been in Christ for, for 20 years. No, this is something that all true children of God have as their inheritance. It's also not a justification for abandoning study. It's not that the scripture says, well, now you don't need to study. You used to need to study when you're a natural man, but now you don't need to. You're a spiritual man. Not at all. The commands to study are, are made to Christians. And it's also not a disregard for pastors and teachers. In fact, the Spirit uses pastors and teachers. In fact, the, the, the Spirit uses members of the church as we speak the Word of God to one another. That's part of the, 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 the tools that He uses in this work of illumination. Well, now, how do we respond to this? What difference does this make in our own lives? It makes a very massive difference. First of all, the first implication from this, as we think about the practicalities and the, the, how the, 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 this doctrine comes to meet us in everyday life, it's, it's this. Number one, lean not on your own adequacy. Lean not on your own adequacy. The goal of your study, your study of the Bible, is not merely some kind of formal intellectual acquaintance with chapters and verses. Yeah, you could do that on your own. It's not just even to memorize texts of Scripture. You can do that on your own. Some of you may have been raised in different children's ministries, and you know you memorized all those verses, and we're lost. You can do that on your own. We're not talking here about those things that you can do on your own. 
As we look at this doctrine of spiritual illumination, the first thing that tells us is that if this is to be at work in us, it means we lean not on our own adequacy, not on our own skills, that we don't put our trust in our own ability to to parse verbs, to decline nouns, to use lexicons and commentaries. Now, all those things are important, but our understanding, our true understanding is not ultimately dependent upon how many commentaries we have in our library. It's dependent upon something much more profound. Remember, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And we can even say this, even as Christians, when we seek to do this by our own strength, it is fruitless. Martin Luther put it this way, the Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. You must count on the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so this first implication is this, How often are you relying on your own strength in your own study of God's word? The implication is stop. Stop relying on your own skill. Stop believing that it's your own ability that will get you to this great understanding. And that leads to the second implication here. As you put off reliance on yourself on your own skill, on your own academic prowess in the things of the Bible, as you put that self-reliance off, what do you put on in its place? Well, you seek the Spirit's enablement. Now, understand this. The atrocities, the, the blasphemies that have been committed against the Holy Spirit in the charismatic movement do tend to to, to make us uncomfortable with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But understand, that should not be so. The the abuses that exist there in the world as it relates to the Holy Spirit should not cause us to ignore his ministry or be ignorant about what the Bible teaches about his ministry. Do not be ignorant of, of your need for the Spirit to enliven your everyday study of the Bible. Be cognizant of that every moment. Pursue this conscious dependency upon him every time that you think about truth in general and about specific texts. He is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of divine disclosure. And so when you're thinking about truth and about how to understand the world in the the big picture idea based on the, the fundamental truths that God has revealed in scripture, or you're wrestling with a tiny text, a little statement that is perplexing to you, always Always be cognizant, deliberate, intentional in your seeking of the Spirit's assistance. That is why we must make the prayers of Psalm 119 our prayers. Lord, I can't understand this without the Spirit's enablement. And I I will not leave it alone until you give me some greater understanding. Give me open eyes. Teach me, Lord. Make the prayers of Psalm 119 your prayers. Our pastor John has written this in a helpful book called How to Get the Most from God's Word. He says, no Christian should ever look down at the Word without first looking up at the very source of the Word and asking for guidance. To engage in Bible study without prayer is presumption, if not sacrilege. So as you look 
to the Scriptures, one eye is always looking to heaven. As your, your mouth pronounces the words on the page, at the same time your mouth is pronouncing these prayers for divine enablement. J.C. Ryle said it in a similar way. He said this, quote, Read the Bible with earnest prayer for the teaching and the help of the Holy Spirit. Here is the rock on which many make shipwreck at the very outset. They do not ask for wisdom and instruction, and so they find the Bible a dark book and carry nothing away from it. You should pray for the Spirit to guide you into all truth. You should beg the Lord Jesus Christ to open your understanding as he did to that of his disciples. And perhaps this is that one exhortation, that one concept that you need to take from tonight's study. You've been struggling in your Bible study and you've wondered, what do I do? Well, as J.C. Ryle counsels, And explain, sometimes the the reason that our Bible study is so difficult and we leave the the text not having gathered much from it at all, sometimes the reason is, is that there is the absence of this divine pleading, this pleading to God that he would give understanding and, and that if he doesn't, I will walk away from this word and not understand a thing. Incorporate As a primary element in your study of Scripture, this prayer, open my eyes. Number three, abandon any expectations for new revelations. Again, that's common. We hear many today talking about how they're waiting for fresh words of the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for the Spirit to speak to them. Well, this is so often just false piety. It's false piety. It's just an excuse not to observe. It's an excuse not to study. It's an excuse not to trust. It's an excuse not to obey that which has already been spoken. It's kind of like when you go to a person and they're in sin, and you bring a text of Scripture to them and say, look at what the Bible says about what you're doing, and the person responds and says, thank you, I'm going to go and need to pray about that. Well, if you're going to pray about that because you're under conviction and you want the Spirit to, to, to tear your heart apart, yes, then go pray. But don't give me, I'm just going to go and pray about it when it really is false piety. You just don't want to do what the text says. And the same thing is here with Scripture. You have so many people saying, well, I need a fresh word from God, and, and they're looking for it everywhere. It's false piety. God has spoken. God has spoken. And to put that off and look for something else just demonstrates that refusal to receive that which he said. And if you refuse to study this, to find your contentment here, then why should God give any extra word to you anyway? In the end, you'll do the same with that. No, God has already spoken. And the Spirit's work will always be In that word, it will be with that word, and it will be through that word. And if you want to know when the Spirit will be most directly working in your life, 
It is when you open the pages of Scripture or when you listen to the words of Scripture or when you repeat in your mind a memorized text, you can know for certain that that is when the Spirit is closest at hand. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, we must never separate the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word, so we should always doubt and query any supposed revelation that is not entirely consistent with the Word of God. Indeed, the essence of wisdom is to reject altogether the term revelation as far as we are concerned and speak only of illumination. The revelation has been given once and for all. And what we need and what by the grace of God we can have and do have is illumination by the Spirit to understand the Word. Number four, be content to study Scripture. Be content to study Scripture since the Spirit's chosen means of disclosing the deep things of God to us is the words that He Himself has inspired. We must joyously submit to the careful and disciplined study of that word. Refuse to pit illumination against interpretation. Illumination against study. B.B. Warfield, as he was training young theological students, would often get the question, what's more important, prayer or reading scripture? And, and, and he'd hear these things that, well, 10 hours of prayer is going to be much better than 10 hours of studying Scripture. And B.B. Warfield responded to that and said, what? 10 hours of reading Scripture on your knees in prayer? What can be better than that? You cannot pit these two things together. It, it, the right kind of study is the study that is bathed in prayer. The right kind of study is the study of the word that is saturated with these pleas. Do not pit the illumination of of Scripture against the interpretation of Scripture. Instead, follow the Spirit's own commands. As he moved Paul to write to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Martin Luther said this, I have covenanted with my Lord that he should not send me visions or dreams nor even angels. I am content with this one gift of the Scriptures, which abundantly teaches and supplies all that is necessary, both for this life and that which is to come. Finally, number five, recognize where your right thinking comes from. The doctrine of illumination is a very humbling doctrine. The doctrine of illumination proclaims to us in very stark terms that we do not arrive at truth on our own. If there is any right thinking in us, it is not due to our own skill. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 puts this in very poignant terms when the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, now note this, 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, those who are in error, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now all of us at one point were in that category of the opposers, of the wayward ones, of the ones who were in error. So how did we get to where we are today? Is it because we're wiser than the rest? We figured it all out? Pulled ourselves up by the academic bootstraps? Not at all. The only reason why today we can sing the hymns that we do and love them, why we can look at the scriptures and say, oh yeah, I see that. Why we can explain to someone what the what the sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross, the only reason why we can do those things and explain those things and understand those things is because of the mercy of God who has sent forth His Spirit to awaken us, to make us alive, and then to teach us. It humbles us. Leon Morris in his commentary in 1 Corinthians said this, that this is revealed takes away all suggestion of superiority. There can be no feeling of pride when it is clear that all is of God. Believers can claim no special skill or insight, only that God has revealed the truth to them. And that's why humility is always a great evidence of the Spirit's work, especially as it relates to doctrine. If you're one of those arrogant men who loves to showcase all of his knowledge, loves to cut people down, to nitpick, to argue, to be quarrelsome, understand that you have failed to give God the glory. And that's a dangerous position to be in. Now, the only reason why we know what we know and love what we love and practice what we practice is because the Spirit, through His ministry of illumination, has made it known, has made it doable, and has made it lovely to us. Let's thank Him for that. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Holy Spirit whom you have sent, first of all, to regenerate us, to make us alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at that moment in our lives, that unique moment in time, you sent your Spirit and that Spirit opened our eyes for the first time to see truth. Made us alive for the first time to breathe the breath of the gospel. Made us alive to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then from that moment on, we have been these recipients of that abiding presence of that Spirit who now dwells within us, our great advocate and intercessor, who so wonderfully takes the knowledge of your deep things and so faithfully, in spite of our laziness, so faithfully makes them known, 
more and more every day. Makes us obey them more and more every day. Makes us cherish and desire them more and more. We give you thanks for that Spirit and our our greatest prayer is that He would have His way with us and that that work of enlightenment, that work of illumination would rise to new levels of clarity and brightness that we've never experienced before so that we would be to the praise of Your glory as those who know Your truth, live Your truth, and love Your truth. We ask this by the Spirit's power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.